Heavenly Lord, please strengthen my voice and guide my understanding. And as I endeavor, Father, to teach what you've provided, I pray, Lord, that the minds and the hearts of those who are present will be guided by your Holy Spirit as well. Father, I can speak as I choose and perhaps speak wrongly at times, but it makes no difference to you, for you have the power through your Spirit to bring the truth to the hearts of anyone you care to bring it to and and to do it despite what I say. And so, Father, in the confidence to know that you are the one who both uh, wrote and teaches, uh, who both wrote and, and can teach what is in the Scripture, because of that confidence, Father, I, I dare to speak your truth this morning, and I, I dare to, to present it. But I do it in your power, and I rest in your, in your skill. And, Lord, I ask that as we hear, we'd also have your encouragement and your strength to apply what we learn and to share it with others and to speak it boldly, especially in a time and in, a, in an age when men are no longer seeking the truth in so many t- cases. Uh, Father, give us the courage to, to bring the truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We just finished up with the New Year's holiday, and I was going to say this last week, although I wasn't here, of course, but uh, it's probably a tradition for many of the families in here to do what I think a lot of people do over that holiday weekend, and, and that is to go to movies. And you know, when you go to the movies, one of the time-honored traditions of movie theaters are to always play the coming attractions of what movies are not there yet. And you're going to see what's coming as you go to the movie. Sometimes those trailers give away a little too much uh, of, the, of what the movie is about, and sometimes they spoil the ending. But if they do it right, if they do it properly, the effect of those trailers, as we call them, is to get you just enough information that you get excited about this coming movie so that when the movie actually debuts, you're going to rush out to see it. You can think of the Old Covenant as God's movie trailer of coming attractions. For example, the Old Covenant gave to Israel a place on earth where God would dwell among them, the tabernacle. But this writer has told us that's not God's true home. It never was. And... The Old Covenant also created a priesthood. But the writer says that priesthood was not able to appease the wrath of God for the sake of Israel. And likewise, the Old Covenant gave Israel sacrifices that they were supposed to perform on a regular basis as a result of the sin of Israel. But but this writer said those sacrifices never actually took away their sin. So what value did the Old Covenant really provide to Israel if all of the things it was given for never were actually accomplished by it? Well, it was a coming attraction. It was a movie trailer for the new covenant, for what God was going to do in the future. Because look at in each of those cases, you see the fulfillment in the new covenant. The new covenant, the writer has already told us, is associated with a true heavenly tabernacle, a real place that exists right now in the heavenly realm. That's where Jesus is currently stationed. The new covenant provides for a sacrifice that does take away the sins of the world in Christ. And the new covenant works through a priest who is able to bridge the gap between God and men. See, all the things that the old covenant previewed, the new covenant actually brought us. Now, what the writer of this letter is trying to do is make sure that his audience, you and I, the Christian audience, will not confuse the movie trailer for the real movie. I mean, once a movie actually comes out in the theater, the trailer is not needed anymore. It doesn't really do us any good anymore. Imagine if you saw a movie trailer, for example, and the movie trailer was for some exciting movie that you really wanted to go see. You're really eager for this movie to show up. 
And then, after a long wait, the movie appears, it debuts. But instead of rushing to the theater to see the movie, I want to imagine for a moment that somebody just sits and watches the movie trailer over and over and over again and never bothers to go see the real movie. Who would do such a thing? Well, John's cheap enough probably to do that. But, but apart from John, who would actually do that? And if you saw someone doing that, what would you tell them? You'd say, well, for crying out loud, if you're so interested, stop watching the trailer, go see the real thing. And so it is with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Once the new appeared, the writer has told us already, then the old is no longer needed. It is no longer the sufficiency of God. You have something bigger waiting for you if you would discover it in the new. But in a sense, that's what the Jewish believers in this writer's day were doing. They were replaying the movie trailer of the old covenant and they hadn't moved on to embracing all of what the new covenant had given them. And as a result, the writer now has been carefully walking them through since chapter 7 now, from 7, 8, 9, now where we are at the end of 9, and into 10. He's been walking them through these major aspects of the old, the priesthood, the tabernacle. Now we're into the sacrifices. And in each of these cases, he's been trying to draw this comparison, movie trailer to the real thing, movie trailer to the real thing. Now, in our culture today as Western Gentile Christians, For us, there was never really any attraction in the movie trailer. We're probably, for the most part, a group of people who've never practiced under the Old Covenant, have never found much affinity for the law of Israel, or been to a tabernacle. There hasn't been one on earth for us, even, for that matter. So for us, it's not so much the dilemma of whether we've been attracted to the old instead of the new. Yet, even still... For the Christian today, there is still this important understanding required of what the new delivered. Because the enemy has not stopped in his effort to persuade believers even to things that are untrue about their own faith. For example, and we'll cover this in a minute as we go into the text this morning. But in some traditions, some religious traditions, people still think that every time they come to the service in that tradition, the Sunday service, that Christ is being re-sacrificed through the bread elements that are used in the communion meal. Where the thought is that I have to break the body of Christ over again, sacrifice him over again and over and over. And that's just not true. That's a false teaching. And I can come to know that that's false because as I read through Hebrews, I come to realize there's been only one sacrifice required. Christ made it on the cross. No more is needed. And it helps make sure that I'm not susceptible to false teaching on the core elements of our faith. That's why even though we don't have an Old Testament mindset or an Old Covenant concern or interest, nevertheless, it's still important to understand what Christ accomplished in the new. So what has he covered so far? As I've said, he covered that there's a better priesthood in Christ. And he covered that there's a better tabernacle in the heavenly. And here we are now in this stage of the letter talking about sacrifices. And as we got into chapter 9... We saw that the writer said there has been a once for all sacrifice offered to cleanse us of sin, offered by Christ. But remember last time I was here, we we looked at the way that the writer described this in chapter nine. And we came to understand that in order for this sacrifice to actually be applied, to be put to work, blood had to be applied on the altar and on the mercy seat in the heavenly tabernacle. And we looked at Ezekiel. Chapter 28, briefly, last time, where we see the fall of Satan described. 
And we came to understand that before he fell, Satan was working as the covering cherub over the mercy seat in the heavenly tabernacle. And when he fell, he polluted the tabernacle, according to Ezekiel 28. And as a result, that place had to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so Christ's blood being the only one capable of cleansing the sin of that place, as Christ died and was resurrected, we said last time that he had to have brought his own blood physically into that heavenly tabernacle and applied it in the heavenly tabernacle so that that room could be cleansed. Paul sums this up for us in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Listen to Paul summing up what I just described. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace, listen, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven... You know what Paul's saying? God, through Christ, reconciled all things to himself through the blood of the cross, those things being on earth as well as in heaven. And the heavenly things he's referring to there, of course, are the tabernacle that was cleansed. All right, so that's, that sets us back where we were, and I hope that was helpful to go back through that a little bit before we step back into the text. So we're in chapter 9 now, verse 24. Let's pick up there. Verses 24 through 26. For Christ did not enter... A holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let's try to understand what the writer just said. At some point following Christ's death and resurrection, at some point that is not described in the Gospels, I should say, we know, based on what the writer here just said, Christ ascended into the heavenly realm. He went there in his physical form, in the body that he now occupies eternally, and he entered into the holy place or the heavenly tabernacle. So there was a tabernacle in heaven in Ezekiel. Do you remember how it was described? Made of precious stones and gold. Can you imagine what that place looks like to walk into the heavenly tabernacle? But he walked in in physical form, having ascended, still bearing the scars, I assume, of the crucifixion he just experienced. And he applied blood, it says, to cleanse this place. Now, what an awesome an amazing spectacle it must have been to watch the victorious, glorified, death-conquering king returning. Remember, he's coming back. He had been there before. He's returning to the heavenly realm, now having completed the plan that the Father had given him. Can you imagine choirs of angels and all of the saints that Christ had led free from captivity, all as his audience? Can you imagine how they must have rejoiced as never before to Observe this scene, one that's as glorious as anything you could possibly imagine, because here God's plan of redemption reaches its climax. God, the man in Christ, returning to his heavenly realm now as the conquering king, ready to fulfill the whole plan of God in applying his blood to the sin that was in the tabernacle and by it to begin then to intercede for all who accept the blood of Christ for salvation's sake. That's what the writer's describing here. 
Now, he's not describing it in all of that flowery language, but we can add those words in our head, can't we? We can try to imagine it. Like the song we sang this morning, I thought it was so appropriate that John put that on the list today. Probably an inspired thought, I assume. Because how can we imagine what that was like? And the writer now says, as he entered that tabernacle made of precious stones and brilliant shining glass and gold, he entered the Holy of Holies, a place that no human being has ever touched, the writer says, not built by human hands, but for the first time a human being walked in. The maker of all things walked in. And if you think about the earthly tabernacle for a minute, it was built with gold and fine linen, but the writer has already told us that's a mere copy on a small scale, on a very muted scale. I mean, by comparison, you might even call it ugly. Christ walked into the fullness of the real thing that could not compare in glory. And then, as the Son of God returned to his heavenly home, he bore with him his blood. Now, that raises an interesting question. How did he actually deliver his blood to that moment? I often wonder if the reason that he was still showing the piercings in his side and in his hands, you know, he appeared to Thomas that way, right? He hadn't healed. I often wonder if he maintained those places on his body so that when he arrives into the heavenly, there's a way for the blood of his body to be taken out. That's a bit graphic, and I'm not sure that's accurate in any case. We don't know how he did it, but we do have this. If the one on earth is a pattern of the one in heaven, and it's a pattern in all respects, right? Not just its design, but even the way it operated. It had a priesthood. It had a holy place. It had a holy of holies. It had an ark in which there was a mercy seat. And remember what the old covenant required the high priest of that covenant to do. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to take a bull out in the courtyard at the altar and kill it. And then the blood of that animal was, of that sacrifice, was let out. And as the blood was coming out, it was collected in a basin, in a bowl. And then, after it was applied on that altar, then the requirement of the law was that the high priest would carry it into the holy place and then ultimately into the Holy of Holies, this one time a year that someone was allowed to walk in. And in the Holy of Holies, he would sprinkle from that basin of blood, the blood of that animal on the mercy seat. That was the routine that he had been given in the law. Well, given that that's the routine in the earthly tabernacle, my assumption, and it's just an assumption, would be that Christ would have had to have carried in his blood in some similar form. How it left his body and entered the basin, I don't know. It's some way or another way. I'm not sure. Maybe angels collected it at the base of the cross, for all we know. But somehow, as the writer says in the verses I just read, the Lord entered the tabernacle with some of his blood, carried it into the holy place, and in verses 25 and 26, the writer says, Christ's application of his blood in the heavenly temple was superior to the point that this only needed to happen once in order to cleanse all men of sin. Now, there's a comparison being implied there. You know, in the Old Covenant, there wasn't just a one-time application. In fact, it was one continuous blood fest in the temple. You had one time a year for the Holy of Holies with the Day of Atonement, but on the other 364 days, or in Jewish calendar, the other 359 days, they were doing sacrifices morning and night. So there was continual sacrifice, continual blood flowing from the altar in the tabernacle. And that continual need to sacrifice is the point this writer is comparing to. He's saying, look, under the old, there was a nonstop sacrifice. Under the new, just one time worked. Why? Well, the death of Christ is the death of an innocent man. And the blood of a man who is innocent 
can be used to cover the sin of a human being who is guilty. And Christ's death suffices to accomplish that end. Whereas the animals that were being killed under the old covenant, their blood could not satisfy the wrath of God for the sin of a human being. Because it's not an apple to apple comparison. You do something wrong, you can't punish your dog for it and expect the law to say, okay, because you punished an animal, you now can then escape punishment yourself. No, no one accepts that, neither does God. So Christ's death is sufficient. But why is the death of Christ capable of saving more than just one person? Why is his blood limitless in its power to save human beings? Let's explore that for a minute. Why did we have to have one savior per person? Why wouldn't Christ have to come and die for me and then another Christ come for you and another Christ? Why is one person's death capable of saving a multitude? It's a good question, isn't it? Paul addresses that in Ephesians. If you want to turn there for a moment, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells all in all. Paul is describing the saving power of Christ's death for the sake of the elect. And he asks the church to know the hope of the calling that we've received from God. And then he goes on to describe the riches of glory that are Christ's inheritance. Now, what he's talking about here is this. Christ has an inheritance because of his work and his death. Like anyone who dies, there's a will. And then as he died, a will went into effect, a covenant. And that covenant provided for Christ to have an inheritance. And so Christ lives again, so now he receives his own inheritance. What did he get? Well, he got the world, literally the physical world, everything that's in it. And he got all who God has given him, Paul says. In other words, all of the saints are part of Christ's inheritance. Then he goes further and he says, after the resurrection, Christ was then seated in the heavenly places because he went up there to apply his blood in the tabernacle. In Eastern culture, if you sit down, it means you're done working. And then yet, if you're a servant and you're not done working, you're not allowed to sit down. Christ uses this same picture in one of the parables when he talks about the servant who goes out in the field and then works all day in the field. And then when he comes in for the dinner hour, he can't sit and eat at the table with the master. He has to remain standing to serve at the table. You only seat yourself when you are finished with your work in that culture. Otherwise, you're always standing. So when it says that Christ was seated at the right hand of the father, it means all the work of salvation was finished and he could sit down because he had finished that work when he applied his blood in the tabernacle. And then lastly, Paul says, from that seated position of authority, he now will rule over his inheritance, which means two things. He rules over the earth and he rules over those he was given, the church. You notice Paul says that at the end, he is head over the church. All that has been given to him, he rules over. All those he indwells, Paul says, are covered by his sacrifice. Now let's go further. Go to chapter 2 if you're following with me, verses 4 through 7. Now here gets to the point of his power to save many through that one act of sacrifice. Verse 4. 
He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, the answer to our question is in there, but it may be kind of hard to see at first. The process, look at the process of redemption that Paul is describing. This is how you were saved. First, it began with all of us being spiritually dead. No one saves themselves. Spiritually dead people don't raise themselves. The comparison to deadness is important in Scripture because what it's saying is just like in the physical sense, no dead body can do anything to cause itself to come back to life. Similarly, in the spiritual sense, no one who is unbelieving can do anything to make themselves become spiritually alive. Something outside yourself must do that to you, specifically God by his spirit must make you alive. In fact, Paul says in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, look in verse five, made us alive. He didn't respond to something we did. He didn't follow something that we started. He made it. He started it. He did it to us. We just find ourselves made alive by his power. We were born again. That's step one. How much control did you have over your birth as you came into the world physically? Did you ask to be born? Did you tell your parents, it's time I be born? No, it happened to you. Similarly, when you were born again spiritually, you didn't walk to God and say, you know what, I'd like to be born again now, please. Thank you. You can't do it. You're dead. God bore you through his spirit into new life. Then the interesting part, what I think is more interesting to me, Paul says, we were raised and seated with Christ. Now look at those verbs. You were raised. You were seated Past tense. Now, you might look at that and you might wonder, how am I said to be raised and seated with Christ in heavenly places when I'm still sitting here right now on earth? It would seem as though he should be saying, we will be raised, we will be seated. Not, we have been. What he's referring to is the moment Christ entered the Holy Tabernacle, which is what we're studying in Hebrews. He walked into the Holy Place on our behalf and he made intercession for us with his blood. Think back again to the Old Covenant. Remember the high priests of the Old Covenant? On the Day of Atonement, that guy walked in wearing the breastplate and the ephod and carrying the blood, and he walks into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkles the blood. Who's he doing that for? Who's he representing? He's representing every other person in Israel right then, all the other people who couldn't do it for themselves, right? Could anyone walk in there and do that? No one. Only the high priest could. Anyone else who dared to try would be struck down by God. So it's said that the high priest was all Israel in the moment he walked in there. That's why that ephod that had all the stones on it and up here on his shoulders, he had all the tribes of Israel inscribed on his shoulder and he had all these stones to represent the 12 tribes. Why is all that decoration on his body? Because it represents Israel. And why is it burdening him? Why is it weighing him down on his shoulders like that? Because it's a way of representing he's carrying the burdens of Israel. He's carrying the sin. He's walking it in for the the nation. And he's satisfying God's wrath, at least in a a limited way. So God in Christ, in the new tabernacle, under the new covenant, is literally ascending and walking in on our behalf, 
and we are said to be there with him. He is working on our behalf in that way. So his blood cleanses for God's wrath against our sin. His work of sacrifice assures us we will be a participant in his resurrection. So the fact that he has been raised means we are as good as raised with him. Because his work assures you and I that we will follow in like kind. We can say today we have been raised with Christ because nothing stands in your way of resurrection. The only thing that stands between you and resurrection is time. And time is no enemy to a God who lives outside of time. It's just delay. It has no bearing on the outcome. He conquered death on our behalf. Now, how have you been seated with him? Well, remember what it means to be seated? We just said this a moment ago, right? When we say Christ is seated, what are we really saying? He has finished the work of redemption. How then is Paul meaning you have been seated with Christ? What is also true for you and I by our faith in Christ? We've been seated. Remember what that means? We've ceased from any work required to be saved. You put your faith in Christ, you have, in a sense, been seated with him because you have likewise stopped working. There's no works to be done for for salvation anymore. Your work is to believe in Christ. And that's not a work in any case, right? Christ has done the work on our behalf. Now, Christ offered a single sacrifice in the tabernacle. And that one-time act is sufficient to save a multitude of people. Let me show you that in the way the writer draws it out. Verses 27 through 28. The writer says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and then after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So the death of Christ was enough to cover many sins. He didn't have to die many times. Because his death was a payment that the Lord, the Father, accepted on behalf of those who are in the new covenant. Look how he starts, verse 27, inasmuch. You could translate that a little differently. You could translate it in accordance with. What he's saying is that there is a reason we even die to begin with. And if you understand why men die at all, then you understand why the death of one man can satisfy the wrath of God. Why are we dying? Why are anyone dying in the world? According to the Bible, it's because we have sin. The wages of sin are death, Paul says in Romans. We know from the garden that God said those who would eat of the fruit would die, and that's the result we now see in life carried on. Everybody dies because everybody has sin. That's the relationship God established. Because of that same relationship, God has now allowed one man's death to stand in our place. The writer says in verse 28, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. The word offer means somebody had to give something to somebody else, right? Christ was offering what? Himself. Who was he offering it to? God the Father. Well, if God the Father is pleased in what Christ offered, then it stands to reason that that will be sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God, who is the author of the plan. Am I making sense? Let me give you a quick analogy. If you took my lawnmower and borrowed it for a weekend and brought it back to me broken and you have now damaged something that is mine, what will determine your restitution? What will determine what you have to do in restitution? Does the law have anything to say about it? 
Not specifically. There's not a law that says when you borrow your neighbor's lawnmower and break it, here's what you must do, right? We don't have laws that specifically. So what's going to determine what you have to do? You're going to go ask your wife? You're going to just make it up as you go? No, what are you going to do? You're going to come to me, the one who owns the lawnmower, and you're going to say, Steve, I broke your lawnmower. What do you want? You want me to fix it? Do you want me to buy you a new one? Do you even care? You see, it comes down to what I want. If I say, you know what, I don't care, just give me the lawnmower back, it doesn't matter to me, I have another one, then that will satisfy me, won't it? But if I say, no, I want a brand new lawnmower, you may not like it, but that's going to be the requirement if you want to satisfy me. You see how this works, right? What the Father has said is, for every man who has sin, I expect a death. And if they do not accept the opportunity in Christ, then they will pay for it with their own death. On the other hand, if they accept Christ, I have determined, the Father has determined that he will accept the offering of Christ. Look in verse 28. He has been offered once to bear the sins of many. If the Father is satisfied with Christ's offering, then he will accept that on the basis of God's own decision to be pleased by his Son, to consider that acceptable. It's not because there's any magic rule. It's because the Father has deemed it acceptable. As Jesus said in John's Gospel, John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, And my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Now listen, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down so that I might take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Who commanded Christ to put his life on the line for the sheep? The father. If the father is the one who holds us guilty, and that same father told his son, you lay your life down for your sheep and I'll be pleased, and then he goes and he does that, then it stands to reason that now any who would accept that payment will be covered because the Father has deemed it acceptable to him. He has decided he is willing to accept that. Jesus made himself a sacrifice in order to please the Father. So now that Christ has met the payment requirement that the Father stipulated, the writer says that when he comes back, when he returns, he can return without respect for judgment for those who await him eagerly. Or simply put, anyone who have put their trust in Christ can look forward to Christ's return with eagerness and not with worry because we know that the only thing that was standing between us and God, our sin, has been taken out of the way and therefore there's no barrier, there's no concern anymore. Of course, we also know not everybody has accepted this, right? That's the whole reason the church is still on earth. Some are still in their sin because some have not placed their trust in Christ and at Christ's second coming there will not be an eager awaiting or an eager anticipation from that group. Instead, they will be among the enemies who Christ comes to defeat at his appearing at the great white throne judgment, it says. All right, now, friends, let's begin chapter 10. Chapter 10 is the writer's offering of Old Testament proofs to support what we just covered. Look at verses 1 through 10. The writer begins, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin? 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's summarize this. I know there's a lot of text there, but the logic is very simple. This all comes out of Psalm 40, which uh, Nathan read for us earlier. The law itself said, do this sacrifice over and over and over again. And the writer says, through that repetition, the worshipers were supposed to get the point that it's not solving the problem. And then they were coming away from it without that cleared conscience. They were recognizing they didn't feel like anything had really been solved because it hadn't. Instead, they were just reminded of their sin over and over again. And the reason, of course, as the writer just points out, is I don't care how many bulls you kill. The life of a bull is not equal to the life of a man. So you're not satisfying God by putting an animal to death. And yet, and here's the funny part. Why did God design a covenant that required that people kill animals when he knew that those animals weren't going to satisfy him. The law God gave to Israel was designed to expose its own weaknesses, to show people that it was not capable of solving the problem because it required this repeated nature of sacrifice. You know, the writer quotes here from Psalm 40. The Lord said himself, sacrifice and offerings and whole burnt offerings. I have not desired, but he asked for it. What he's saying is it didn't satisfy me for your sin, but I asked for it so that you would know that you need to turn to the Savior that I'm preparing for you, a body that I have prepared for you that will die in your place. That human body, that Christ body, is the one that he has been preparing. And he wrote it in the law and he wrote it in the Old Testament for Israel. He said, I have given you a law with a sacrificial system, but I don't have desire for you to solve the problem of your sin through this system. That's not my desire for it. That's not my purpose in it. What I've prepared for you is a body who will do my will, that is Christ. And when he dies in your place, that will satisfy me. And so in verses 8 and 9, the writer has this powerful logic. He says, if the Lord has said, I don't take sacrifices as a source of pleasure, then later he says, the one who comes to do my will, that will please me. Well, then logically, he says, you have to conclude when that one finally comes, he's replacing the earlier. If the earlier didn't do it and the later one did, then the later must be a replacement for the earlier. That's a logical assumption. Friends, that's how it is now with us as believers. Verse 10, he says, we have been sanctified, past tense, made holy by the offering of the body of Christ once and for all. Friends, you cannot be more holy than you are in Christ's sacrifice. You cannot be more acceptable to God than you are when you accept the death of Christ in your place. We all seek to live in a way that pleases God. But you are not actually more holy. You are not actually more righteous because you do ten good works and I do five. Or because you sin one time and I sin ten. You have not become more holy than I am and I cannot become more holy than you are. No work, no sacrifice, no chant, no prayer, no activity can make you more righteous, more acceptable to God than what you already are 
because of the work Christ did. That's what pleased God. But if you have not accepted that sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, then there's nothing you can ever do to please God. It's exactly the opposite. No work, no sacrifice, no prayer, no chant, no nothing will bring you even a step closer to God apart from the sacrifice of Christ. Your death will be your payment for your sin, for there will be no other payment available. But if you believe in Christ, accept his penalty in your place, then you can let his death pay that price. And God is willing to accept his death on the behalf of many, it says, not just some or not just one. Because in the Father's preordained, sovereign, predestined plan, he knew as his son died, all those who would be covered by that sin, and he made that offering sufficient because he was willing to accept it. He says, son, when you die for these that are mine, your sheep that I will give you, I will count it acceptable for all of them if you do as I call you to do, as I command you to do. By the will of the Father, it was acceptable. By the obedience of Christ, it was made sufficient. And for all who are in the Father's view, those of his sheep, it is going to cover those sins. Now, it is limitless in its ability. God could cover an uncountable number by it. But it is efficient to those who are included in the new covenant by faith. You want to be in the new covenant? Believe with your heart and confess with your mouth. You want to be covered by the sacrifice of Christ? Accept his death in your place. It's just that simple from our point of view and just that profound from Christ's point of view. And he made that sacrifice on earth and he applied that blood in heaven so that we would travel from here to there as well in the day that he appoints. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we finish our service. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel as it's been represented for us today in the book of Hebrews. For the reminder of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone by his death in our place. A gospel that has been ringing true, Father, since you authored it. A gospel that some would change and many would ignore or distort. But Father, let us remember it in its true and honest form and let us repeat it boldly and with courage to those in some cases who may not wish to hear it. But in other cases, Father, for those who desperately need it. And uh, Lord, thank you for a, a church that continues to preach your word and know the truth and wish to share it. But Father, we also confess as we begin a new year that perhaps we haven't been as quick to share it at times when we could. Perhaps we've been content to know it for ourselves alone. Perhaps we've assumed that for the sake of friendships, perhaps for uh, politeness sake, or just because it's easier to remain quiet. We have chosen to overlook opportunities to share it, in some cases with those who are close to us. Forgive us, Father. Not that their salvation rests on our hands, but nevertheless, Father, because you've called us and, and equipped us to do that work and left us here to do it, we, we acknowledge that we have, in many cases, disappointed you by not putting ourselves to that labor. I pray, Father, you would convince us here again this morning anew that our call at all times is to preach the gospel in season and out of season, to be witnesses of light in a world that is dark. And though men love the darkness and hate the light because it exposes their evil deeds, Father, so it was with us one day before, and yet, Father, you and your grace called us out of darkness and you permitted us to see the light truly. I pray, Lord, you would use us so that others might experience that same thing this year. Let us be light, courageous, bold light. 
And I thank you, Lord, that you remind us of that through your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.